sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the plight of migrants who are literally bused from Texas to D.C. Also going to be touching on recent developments in the world of WikiLeaks. And it's Friday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. What Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory, but that doesn't mean he's a winner. He's just going to say he's a winner. This is what Steve Bannon said in a leaked audio of a meeting he held with a group of high-powered Trump supporters at the Willard Hotel on October 31st, 2020. The audio was obtained by Mother Jones magazine and reveals that Trump had planned to use the slow counting of votes on election night to declare victory, even though he knew that the final tallies would indicate otherwise. Those early tallies did show Trump leading in many states, and Bannon said that Trump planned to just declare himself the winner and literally let the chips fall chaotically where they may when the final election results were ultimately called for Biden. Bannon also predicted that Trump's false declaration of victory would lead to widespread political violence, along with crazy efforts by Trump to stay in office, potential scenarios that he and his associates laughed about during the meeting. Bannon has refused to cooperate with the January 6th committee subpoena, so the Justice Department charged him with two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. Now Bannon said that he wants to testify before the committee, but it seems that he's using that to try to get out of going to trial for those criminal contempt of Congress charges. Not going to work, though, because a judge ruled this week that his trial will go forward on Monday. Bannon also believed that if Trump actually won, there would be violence on the left. But he also believed that Trump's strategy to lie about winning would also cause violence, which he welcomed as well. He believed that election night would mark the start of a battle for power in which Trump would try to stop the votes of people who opposed him from being counted, while Democrats would try to use invalid ballots to defeat him. Democrats, Bannon claimed, steal elections all the time. Here's the thing. He's not entirely wrong. We just talked about Democrats once again using legal measures that barely passed muster to keep the Green Party off ballots in North Carolina, just as they had done in the past in Wisconsin, Montana, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And people might argue that suing to keep a political party off the ballot is not the same as stealing an election and certainly not the same as lying, claiming that you won an election when you know the opposite is true, all in an effort to maintain power. But Democrats keep using this phrase, subverting democracy, in regard to what Trump and his acolytes and his minions planned and tried to do. And I don't see how denying legitimate political parties ballot access so their candidates can present their platforms and policies to the people and allow the people the right to vote for all political choices possible to them. I don't see how that's not subverting democracy. 
The Democrats could, of course, just craft a platform full of policies that reflect what people want rather than limiting the political choices people have so they're left with voting for the lesser of two evils all the time. But that would mean that they'd actually have to carry through on implementing those policies when the people vote for them. And they don't want to do that. Denying voters the right to vote for whatever candidate they want under the guise that those candidates or that political party takes votes away from the Democratic Party, that is subverting democracy. So maybe the Democrats aren't outright stealing elections, but they sure as hell are subverting and denying democracy to voters every single election season. Trump, Bannon, and their ilk are honest about their contempt for the people and their lust for power for themselves, regardless of the cost to anyone else. The Democrats want exactly the same thing. They just have better messaging and PR and lawyers. The House of Representatives passed a bill on Thursday, paving the way for the defense budget to exceed $800 billion next year, authorizing $37 billion in spending on top of the record $773 billion proposed by President Joe Biden. The Senate has not passed its version yet, but the Senate Armed Services Committee has already backed an even larger increase than the House version, uh, $45 billion over Biden's proposal. More than a dozen Democrats joined Republicans in favor of this higher spending, which includes $2.5 billion to help pay higher fuel costs, $550 million in additional funding for Ukraine, funding for five ships, eight Boeing co-made F-14 Super Hornet fighter jets, five Lockheed Martin co-made C-130 Hercules planes, and about $1 billion for four Patriot missile units. Meanwhile, the armed forces that Biden and Congress is throwing all this additional money at are experiencing large shortfalls in enlistment this year, a deficit of thousands of entry-level troops that's on pace to be the worst than any since just after the Vietnam War. This threatens, of course, to throw a wrench into the military's machinery, leaving critical jobs unfilled and some platoons with too few people to function. Some contributing factors, according to the New York Times, uh, that are being considered are COVID restrictions, limiting regular in-person recruitment efforts, the job market that's allegedly so white hot that there are so many more jobs than people to fill them, which makes military service not as attractive to people, and even younger people are unfit and unable to meet the rigorous physical requirements to join the military. But the most telling reason that the military is experiencing this drop in recruitment is the shifting attitudes toward military service among younger demographics, which means that today only about one in 10 young people say they would even consider it. So the military is trying new tactics to lure people in, including offering enlistment bonuses as high as $50,000, offering quick ship cash of up to $35,000 for people who can leave for basic training in 30 days. They've loosened their restrictions on neck tattoos and, and stuff like that. And the Army even briefly dropped its requirement 
that enlistees needed a high school diploma before they decided that was probably not a good idea and reversed course on that one. But as more people see how much money the U.S. government is willing to spend on militarism and war, while crying poverty when it comes to meeting people's basic needs, and as people have seen how the same government literally throws veterans of their endless wars away when they finally come home from them, the kids have finally realized that it is just not worth it to occupy, oppress, and kill people around the world for free health care and housing for themselves. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Madhavi Bahel, an organizer with the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network. Madhavi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Madhavi, since about the second week of April uh, this year, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been busing in uh, asylum seekers from the Texas borders to uh, Washington, D.C. as a part of what you all describe as a racist publicity stunt. And I will quite agree that that is uh, exactly what's going on here. And uh, most recently, we've been seeing images and stories uh, published by, you know, uh, platforms like the Washington Post and things like that, that was really sort of focusing attention uh, on these migrants that were finding their way uh, uh, to D.C., sometimes early in the morning, sometimes late at night. And this uh, uh, attempt by your organization uh, and others to really give support uh, to these folks who are just, you know, seeking better conditions. And uh, just to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand sort of uh, the background and context for how these migrants arrive in D.C. and basically what is here for them when they get there. Yeah, for sure. So the migrants are bused from different locations in Texas. Very soon after they come across the border, they are put on a bus and told that they will get transportation or housing and different things if they go to D.C. And when they get here, we try to welcome them in any way that we can. And that starts with just providing food and respite space for them to just relax after a long 36-hour bus journey that happens so soon after their journey across the border. Um, and then from there, we figure out what their needs are. You know, some of them come with just the clothes on their back. Some of them come without shoes. So, you know, it's getting those kind of supplies to them. And then finding out if they have any sponsors, where they want to go from there, and getting transportation for them to do that. And then lastly, if they choose to stay in the city, we try to arrange housing. Yeah. And so what what I'm interested in also, and I appreciate that background, is uh, what is the level of response that we see from the city government? Because it's my understanding that D.C. is a, a sanctuary city and things like that. So, I mean, what kind of resources are uh, available to migrants when they uh, reach D.C.? And uh, uh, how is it that, you know, folks are able to, you know, receive this? Is this able to be a real benefit? Like, how does that process work from your perspective? 
So um, the D.C. government has done absolutely nothing over the past three months. Mayor Bowser has not even acknowledged that this is happening since the first week where she did a press conference talking about it, basically condemning Abbott, but then she ignored it for the rest of the time. And no, and trying to reach out to her has been pointless. She does not, um, she does not respond. And from people who have talked to her, it seems that she thinks it's not the responsibility of DC to handle any of this, and it should be on the federal government, which claiming to be a sanctuary city and then having that approach to migrants coming to our city is um, pretty contradictory. The council, as of yesterday, has sent a letter to her asking. To her to step up to support these migrants, and they have outlined different demands, such as respite space and um, money for transportation and food and COVID tests. You can see, I'll send you their letter later. And uh, it was led by Councilmember Nadeau and signed on by nine other council members. They actually outlined something really important is that DC has over like somewhere somewhere around five hundred million dollar budget surplus uh, from FY twenty two budget that could be used for this, and also of course could be used for all the other things like unhoused support that we need in the city. You know there are aid efforts that are just not enough. Uh, the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network that does uh, um, work uh, to try to provide some services for people um, are actually quarantining after being exposed to the coronavirus while they were helping migrants over the weekend. But the uh, SAMU First Response, which is an international aid organization, has a FEMA uh, uh, grant to help. But these are patchwork efforts. And I mean, how can these aid organizations uh, petition more government support so they can really provide the kind of uh, help that these people really need, not just on sporadic days, but particularly since people are, you know, putting their own health and safety at risk to meet a need that the government just refuses uh, uh, to do anything about? Yeah, um, that is a good question. So one thing I wanted to note is that we were quarantining from Tuesday to, like, from the weekend to now. Uh, actually, a lot of us finally got out of quarantine and tested negative. But the the work stoppage from Tuesday night to Thursday night was intentional and done by the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network to, one, quarantine and to take physical and mental rest after three months of 24-7 work. And third, it was to protest government inaction and bring this issue to a national level attention because honestly mayor bowser is largely motivated by harassment and shame and not by the goodness of her heart so i do want to note that that it wasn't um that we it was a conscious decision we made and it was a really hard decision that we had to make but it was the the last way that we could think to get any attention towards this that we have been trying for three months and, uh, you know, people's bodies and minds were breaking down after that much work because we all have other jobs that we have to do also. Ways to petition the government. I mean, we have a toolkit that is for calling the council and the mayor. We'll probably update that now, given uh, the council has put out this letter. And, you know, it, it is also upon the Biden administration to take action because this is being done 
to fight them. This is about Washington, and it is not about D.C. And too often, D.C. gets stuck in the battles of Washington. And we are happy to do this for folks coming to live in our city, and we welcome them. But this is also the responsibility of Washington. Yeah, I agree. And I want to highlight something uh, that you just said, Ma, because I feel like this is an issue that often uh, uh, crops up with uh, this kind of work, even outside of the context of uh, uh, sort of immigration work, is the fact that, um, you know, uh, uh, you all and similar groups do great work, but you come into this, you know, already having whole lives that you have to tend to. Like you say, people have jobs that they need to sustain themselves. People uh, maybe have other political work that we're doing. Of course, we we have personal lives, uh, uh, as we we're pointing out. At some point, you got to eat something and sleep for a little bit. You know what I mean? And so uh, it can definitely reach a point where people hit a, a, a wall. And this, I think, can kind of be the limit of, uh, you know, some of these sort of volunteer driven efforts. But to your point, this is really something that should be taken up at the city level with all of its resources, particularly a city like D.C. that not only has the money to really uh, address address this issue and help these migrants um, uh, as much as they can, but particularly a city that uh, uh, has this image and portrays itself as this progressive beacon to uh, the country and the world. And even having a mayor like Muriel Bowser, like you noted, who I I think um, sort of undeservedly has this um, sort of reputation as a progressive, uh, particularly outside of D.C., I think. But this is also, you know, the same person who has these cozy relationships with uh, developers and things like this. And so the the struggling people of D.C., be they migrants from Latin America, be they, you know, uh, native black Washingtonians that are simply trying to stay in their neighborhoods against the uh, tide of gentrification and displacement, they're simply uh, uh, not a consideration. And so from your perspective, I mean, how uh, important is it then that we continue to sort of, you know, uh, not only build these networks and the work that we're doing, but uh, to perhaps, you know, connect these efforts to a kind of, you know, broader struggle and a broader movement that is really, you know, pushing for these things and fighting for what these uh, migrants need, even as those who are in power and have the ability to make resources available basically refuse. That's a really good question. And thank you for naming that. Yeah, this city is really interesting that way. It has such a progressive People think it's so progressive from the outside, but then we have a mayor like Nero Bowser, who most probably response is going to be painting abolish ice on the sidewalk outside Union Station and thinking that's doing something. But I really, it is super important to connect this and what is happening to the larger organizing in the city. And I think in the beginning, we thought this was going to be a short amount of time. And so it was in a very triage kind of approach to a very reminiscent of early pandemic organizing. And now we kind of have transitioning into this long-term mindset of how are we going to deal with this in the long-term and how are we going to integrate it into the larger movements and organizing struggles in the, in the city? Because most of us are in other organizing spaces and this has taken a lot of time away from those spaces for us and it's taking resources as well. And not in a way that we should be like this is competing But we need to find a way to make it such that this is getting this national attention now. Let it also help the other things that we need done in the city. For example, we are running out of housing to house people in because people were opening up their homes. We were using hotels. We were using Airbnbs. We were renting apartments. But 
as you know, in D.C., there is a housing crisis. There's affordable housing is really hard to come by because of these developers. And now people are going to shelters. And that is putting strain on unhoused support groups who already are so under-resourced and unhoused folks in the city who are already so under-resourced. And how do we use this to further that too, to make sure that we are not only getting resources for the folks coming out of the buses, we're getting the same resources for the folks who are already living in the city unhoused. Yeah. And, you know, what can be done to support your organization in the meantime, as the organization is trying to negotiate with the city for those things, for housing, uh, you know, for uh, financial resources to provide the support? People who are listening, what can we do to help the organization and the people who need help in the meantime? We uh, definitely need volunteers. We need folks to turn up um, and for intake to drive people around to help sort supplies. There's a ton of different things you can do. And we have a sign-up form that I can share with y'all to uh, volunteer. And then we also need donations for sure. We spend thousands upon thousands of dollars every day. Like we've spent more than $260,000, I think, of grassroots raised money uh, so far. And it seems that seems like a large amount, but if you if you actually like see the vastness of the operation that we we are running, it actually is kind of nickel and diming things together. And uh, yeah, so there's a ton of ways that you can get involved. You can donate supplies. So uh, we have a whole bunch of links. I feel like I may have to share that with you after because it may be hard to share verbally. But yeah, there are definitely ways to get involved. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mavi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments in the world of WikiLeaks. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Kevin Gastola, managing editor of Shadowproof and the co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Kevin, former CIA employee Joshua Schulte has been convicted by a federal jury in New York of allegedly releasing what's known as the Vault 7 materials to WikiLeaks in uh, what they say is a violation of the Espionage Act. And uh, reportedly, this is uh, not the first trial uh, against Mr. Schulte. Uh, You recently published a piece about this in The Dissenter entitled Jury Finds Former CIA Programmer Guilty of Leaking CIA Hacking Materials to WikiLeaks. And so to begin, Kevin, if you could first describe what are the uh, Vault 7 materials and how is it that Mr. Mr. Schulte became uh, the target of this. Back in March 2017, 
the CIA suffered the largest leak in the history of their agency, or they realized, learned when WikiLeaks published these files. And in the files, we get evidence of the CIA's hacking capabilities, how they can plant malware into smart televisions, Samsung televisions, on your iPhone, on your Android phone, how they can uh, turn the phones into eavesdropping or spying devices by taking over the microphone, making them work for agents, uh, and not presumably target individuals who are the, uh, the subject or targets of their operations. Uh, we get evidence of how they know that there are vulnerabilities in software and hardware that companies are leaving and that are going to mean that users are susceptible to being hacked, uh, not just by government agencies around the world, but from private hackers as well, and that they're not telling them. They're hoarding those, they're called zero-day vulnerabilities, and they're not doing anything to inform people. We also learned that there's a development of, of, of malware that can infect Microsoft Windows users and so you go to Wiki, uh, you go to WikiLeaks's website. You can see the Vault Seven materials. You can see how it's organized. Some of the other different revel- revelations. Uh, but this was published by WikiLeaks, and they immediately, after a week, decided that Joshua Schulte must be the one who was responsible because he's a disgruntled CIA employee, and he left the cyber. Uh, I believe it's the Cyber Intelligence Center at the CIA, and it was on bad. Bad, there was bad blood between him and another employee, and he had tried to go after CIA supervisors for not protecting him from this employee. Um, it looks like they had a dispute, and it seems like both are at fault to some degree, and he was a difficult person to work with. But he left the agency, and they came after him right away because they figured, you know, this would be an easy person to blame for the WikiLeaks publication. And not only did they uh, go after him, it pretty much seemed to make him a convenient target because he was a disgruntled employee. But at the time uh, when the leaks happened, then CIA director Mike Pompeo had labeled WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence agency that was developing secret war plans. Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael D. Lockhart said that Schulte stole the entirety of the CIA's highly sensitive cyber intelligence capabilities. And at, but that occurred just right after the CIA locked Schulte out of the secured, restricted location after he left the agency. But in court, in this case, there was actually no evidence presented to prove that Schulte was linked to any of this, was there? So let's be clear. Uh, there, there are naysayers out there who have been saying, uh, and this is in response to my reporting, that there was forensic evidence that the government spent multiple days pre- presenting forensic evidence that showed uh, Schulte's actions within the agency and what he was able to do and, and tracked his movements on the computer and the keystrokes, etc. And and yeah, I'm not disputing that they definitely spent time trying to persuade a jury that he covered his tracks, erased his tracks, because he's capable of using encryption and knows how to cover his tracks, that you wouldn't find evidence of what he was doing. And that is why you should consider him guilty. And that was the argument they made to the jury, which seems to have been on some level persuasive. But what is most important for people to know about this story 
is that they never linked Joshua Schulte to the publication of files. So, for example, people know Chelsea Manning's case. We have evidence in Chelsea Manning's case of a transfer of files to WikiLeaks and that she used the submissions portal for WikiLeaks, and then they published the files that are at issue right now in Julian Assange's own extradition case. And in this instance, there's nothing. There's nothing to tie Joshua Schulte to WikiLeaks other than the fact that he was doing searches on Google for WikiLeaks at a time when WikiLeaks was in the news. And uh, so some of the things that you would just be hoping to find if you wanted to label him as the prime suspect, they're not there in the system. And it's also difficult to claim that he was hiding his tracks because I know that Joshua Schulte is he was, by the way, I should say, he represented himself in the second trial. So, you know, to some degree, I understand that some people might not take the evidence being presented as credible because, of course, he's going to spin it to represent himself. That being said, he's doing the best that he can to defend himself, and he's presenting evidence that would undermine this claim that he was covering his tracks while he was at the agency because he doesn't actually leave the agency immediately after the government claims he leaked the files to WikiLeaks or stole the files. He stays there at the Cyber Intelligence Center for about four or five more months. And that's just, to me, is kind of bizarre, the idea that you wouldn't make a quick exit after you were stealing documents. Yeah, definitely. And given your analysis and reporting on this, Kevin, I mean, I have to ask, why then is it uh, necessary to, you know, target Mr. Schulte? We talked about how, you know, this sort of narrative around him at the agency is convenient. I mean, it sort of seems like someone has to have the blame pinned on them for this leak uh, to have happened. I mean, uh, do you think this might be the case with Mr. Schulte? Or what do you think is motivating um, both uh, the agency and, uh, you know, these different uh, uh, court institutions that he's been subject to here? No, I think it's just as simple that someone has to go to the gallows pole. I mean, someone's got to be hung for what happened. And so we're going to go pin it on whoever we can. And then, uh, you know, once we're done, that's going to be settled. We don't care if we got the wrong culprit. You know, there were like 200 or so people that had access to the server who could be the ones that stole the files and produced them and gave them to WikiLeaks. And, you know, on one level, I want to say as a journalist, that those files are in the public interest. Like, they're worth knowing. We never had a debate about the uh, way in which the CIA should be allowed to engage in offensive cyber warfare and go target people all around the world. We, we haven't had that open discussion. And WikiLeaks put that into the news cycle for a few days, uh, for a few months. There were headlines that were being published about what the CIA could do to plant malware. Into, into our technology. And uh, it was important for us to have that conversation because uh, certainly our political leaders don't want to have that conversation. And even our tech overlords don't really want to have that conversation, um, though they were forced to because of WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Uh, so I think it's just the fact that they need to have revenge somehow. I mean, Mike Pompeo, let's go back to him, was embarrassed. We know from this Yahoo News report, embarrassed because he was going to have to go face Donald Trump and tell Donald Trump that on his watch, these materials, these highly sensitive materials, had been published. And they thought they were unique. They thought leaks don't happen to the CIA. They happen to the U.S. State Department, which had the diplomatic cables released by Chelsea Manning. They happened to the Pentagon. There were war logs from Iraq and Afghanistan that exposed the wars. You had the collateral murder video. 
But the CIA, we take care of our files. Our systems are totally secure. Nobody will ever get us. And then they were wrong. This was the largest leak in the CIA's history. It's a huge embarrassment. And Pompeo and others were out for blood. Yeah, and that the aspect of it, sort of the the actual substance of uh, the Vault Seven leaks. I mean, it almost feels kind of obscured in this broader issue around Schulte, and perhaps that's uh, a, a part of the whole point. I mean, just this incredible uh, surveillance and invasion of privacy uh, that the CIA has been uh, uh, documented to be taken part in. And I mean, in truth, this seems like really the whole uh, issue that I mean. The state itself, I think it's fair to say, and we talk about the U.S. as a whole, the the, the U.S. state apparatus, the issue it has with WikiLeaks, because it it, it, it seems like you, you don't really see WikiLeaks being accused of printing falsehoods, but the the uh, ire seems to come from the fact that they're, you know, releasing this kind of information that wasn't meant to be released, that exposes quite a bit about the reality about how the U.S. and other uh, uh, governments operate, you know what I mean? And so it feels then, Kevin, that uh, the broader issue is one of, you know, surveillance and suppression and uh, uh, censorship that, you know, uh, seemingly is trying to be covered up by some of these different agencies and institutions that benefit quite a bit from the public not knowing uh, about these things. Yeah, I think the surveillance is a big deal. I also think there are due process rights issues when you're prosecuting the Espionage Act. Uh, it's worth noting that the first trial against Joshua Schulte was in March 2020. It ended in a mistrial. It was a hung jury. Uh, the Justice Department said, no, we're not going to settle for that. We're going to bring him to trial again. And then they prevailed here, getting a jury to believe that you know, he was guilty. And he's in harsh conditions. He's being held under special administrative measures. The attorney general has put him in these highly restrictive conditions. He can't talk to the media. He can only talk to a select number of people in his family. Um, he's uh, under very strict mail restrictions of what he can receive. This is what Assange is going to go through if he's brought to the U.S. So we see in this case a, a through line that the people who work for the government are treated in this manner. We see all these whistleblower cases stacking up on each other, and they point to how Julian Assange is going to be treated if he's put on trial in the United States. Yeah, definitely. And to be clear, when you said Attorney General, you're talking about Attorney General Merrick Garland. This has not uh, uh, eased. Uh, His treatment hasn't eased. His uh, uh, the, the way he's seen has not changed under the Biden administration as opposed to under the Trump administration, has it? Yeah, that's correct. It started with Jeff Sessions when he was Attorney General. It continued with Bill Barr. And then Merrick Garland hasn't done anything different. And in fact, one of the more ghastly parts of this story is that there's a civil complaint against the Bureau of Prisons for barbaric conditions that Joshua Schulte was subjected to at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York, which has since been shut down. It was the location where Jeffrey Epstein was found dead. It's also a location where there were all kinds of things like rodent infestations cockroaches. It was in disrepair, poor ventilation, uh, just really decrepit, filthy conditions. The Justice Department shut it down, but they didn't transfer Joshua Schulte out when they shut it down. They kept him there for weeks because they said, we're going to keep people incarcerated here who have pending trials. And then eventually they moved him out to the prison in Brooklyn. But that's how 
inhumane they are towards people, especially those accused of Espionage Act violations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it shows a sort of real uh, torturous conditions that uh, uh, often goes on inside these prisons and, you know, that the rank and file uh, uh, inmate has to deal with, let alone someone that's been targeted like Schulte or like a uh, uh, Julian Assange. And I think you're absolutely correct, Kevin, that should Assange ultimately be extradited to the United States, that this is precisely what we can expect for him. But we thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary welcome back to by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. How are y'all doing? Doing well, Nate. Doing well. And uh, to kick things off today, it's been recently reported that uh, Demarius Thomas, former uh, NFL star who died at the age of 33, has been ruled to actually have had CTE. And uh, this is, I think, an increasingly common thing that we're seeing in uh, more and more NFL players, particularly as more attention is uh, paid to CTE and the different ways that it plays out and just I mean, the incredibly punishing uh, careers of this very physical sport of the NFL that, uh, you know, frankly, seems mostly interested in sort of, you know, chewing up a lot of uh, uh, athletes and milking them for all the profit they can before sort of brushing them aside. But CTE is actually just one aspect of, I think, a number of different dynamics that went into the life of a Demarius Thomas. So I was hoping you could tell us about that and how do you think it reflects on both the the NFL and professional sports in general? Well, it's a lot more than just professional sports, but I guess it's professional sports that influences the, the mindset of, uh, you know, when you're an exceptional athlete like Demarius Thomas was in football, basketball, track, growing up in middle Georgia like he did between a uh, small town between Macon and Savannah. Uh, they, you know, the whole making it out, a way out sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, there's one quote that struck me from uh, – his former high school basketball coach that talked about, quote, he had a lot of injuries that he played through. And he would always say, you know how I was raised. You know how I was trained. I'm not going to let my team down, said Paul Williams, who was the coach I just mentioned. He said Thomas always had a ready smile despite his many challenges off the field. He also dealt with uh, bullying, you know, after, like, you know, age 11 school when uh, his federal agents burst into the family's home and, uh, you know, and, found money connected to a drug ring led by, you know, uh, uh, his his grandmother, Minnie Pearl Thomas. And then uh, his mother was uh, sentenced to 20 years in prison after she would not um, uh, basically snitch on her own mother, right? So then that led to him eventually being raised by, um, I believe, the sister of his father, who's been kind of in and out. He's been in the Army and been deployed. So, I mean, that's some of the background for, like, what, 
built up Demarius, Tom, Demarius Thomas's uh, intense focus on on you know developing his athletic prowess, um, ultimately taking him to Georgia Tech, um, and then being drafted in the first round um, by the Denver Broncos, and, and I believe it was two thousand uh, two thousand nine. And uh, you know Thomas was uh, you know. Thomas is a guy that he won a Super Bowl. Um, when Peyton Manning came on the scene, he was rid of having to be a receiver for Tim Tebow uh, <laughs> for a couple of years. That uh, that that definitely helped uh, helped him, him continue to grow his profile. He did write a letter actually to lead up to uh, their Super Bowl win in Super Bowl Fifty over uh, Cam Newton, Carolina Panthers, to President Obama that resulted in uh, his mother finally being given clemency not not a pardon but clemency. Um, by President Obama. So this is like, you know, part of Thomas is someone which makes it all the more crazy that, you know, when he retired not so long ago during the pandemic, actually, um, that, you know, he talked to, he had a difficult time adjusting. I mean, he got caught going 40 miles per hour over the speed limit, uh, flipped his car multiple times, suddenly started just, you know, having seizures, complaining of like headaches, uh, you know, just really, you know, uh, warm sort of personal demeanor. Uh, suddenly began to, you know, people began to see more signs than wanting to withdraw, wanting to get away, wanting to avoid social situations, um, probably because he was feeling more irritable, more booty. And, uh, you know, what we know now from uh, the Boston University researchers uh, looking at the brain, uh, it all makes sense. The seizures, uh, the irritability, and uh, the mood changes these uh, last couple of years. Yeah, and and the diagnosis or or the uh, the autopsy results of that examination of his brain uh, from Boston University not only indicated uh, stage two CTE, but uh, he also had uh, seizures seizures that were brought on by that 2019 car crash, and this of course leads me to, as it always leads me to this question about health care that athletes have uh, while they are in the NFL, while they are, or, or while they're playing, what kind of uh, medical care could this so-called high-value player have if he wasn't given any kind of treatment to address these issues even as the symptoms started to manifest themselves? Well, I mean, one thing about Demarius Thomas is since he was a superstar player, he can't fall into the category of guys that were, uh, you know, broke necessarily. He, he made pulled in nearly $75 million. He was actually taking, I mean, I'm not sure exactly the, the, pay, the payer for his healthcare therapies. I mean, lots of uh, ozone therapy stuff, uh, hyperbaric chamber, massages, um, all sorts of treatments he was like, you know, going, you know, spending money on. Right? But I, it doesn't actually address, like, you know, so how many of those were actually covered by his health plan. I mean, he did play long enough in the NFL to be vested. And if you're vested, then you do have, like, more benefits in the last, you know, a certain number of years after you finish playing. But, um, you know, the, the reality is most players aren't Demarius Thomas. They don't have that super superstar level of status. And, you know, guys that achieve his level of, of fame and, and accomplishment and, and also income are, are few and far between. So um, even with all that, you know, look at what, you know, he went through. And uh, a lot of it, you know, goes back to, again, that mentality of wanting to play through pain, of wanting to do whatever it takes to be there for your teammates, to not let your teammates down, to be dependable 
is something that's very much exploited by people in ownership positions uh, because it's a it's a trait that's a good trait, right? You know, shared sacrifice. You want to you want to pull your weight, you know, with the people you're around, your teammates, your people, whatever, whether that be um, in, a, in a sporting event, in a team sport, or whether that just be in life, be a good neighbor to people. But when that can be exploited to like get you to like you know feel that pushing through pain is a virtue, pushing through you know, you know difficult injuries is a virtue. Um, then you can end up with uh, you know the, the, these tragic results we see in terms of uh, bodies falling apart and, and, and you know brains and, and, and the CT you know um, proliferation we've seen. Definitely. And and what's clear to me, Nate, is about how the dynamics of uh, race and class sort of uh, factor into to all of this. And I just feel like, you know, uh, uh, frankly, you know, people are are brought into the league and, you know, like a lot of human beings, I mean, they come with, you know, certain backgrounds, certain experiences and certain baggage that I mean, the league doesn't really seem that interested in really addressing as long as they're out on the field uh, delivering in the moment that they stop doing that or if some of these same issues, you know, sort of manifest in behavioral issues and things like that, well, then they seem to be easily uh, uh, disposed of. And I want to connect that to sort of uh, another relevant story that's uh, happening here that I think has actually been relevant for a long time, just, just in a different way. And that's this whole issue of uh, Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson, who was recently involved in a discussion around, you know, the racial uh, uh, biases that exist towards black quarterbacks in the NFL, something that's been an issue for years and years and years. And so, you know, what was this uh, uh, discussion, Nate? I mean, Jackson seems to feel that um, his words were basically taken out of context or misinterpreted. And, and how do you connect it to this issue of racism towards black quarterbacks in the league? Yeah, well, I mean, this one is, is a little tricky. I mean, Bernard Pollard has it's been a heart you know, recently. You know, I don't know to say recently, but within the last four or five years, retired safety. Um, he was a hard-hitting safety, delivered a lot of punishment on a lot of receivers and players going, you know, uh, in his NFL days. And you know, he was recently talking about his new role in media. Um, you know, Lamar Jackson and whether or not saying he's a top ten talent, but not necessarily a top ten quarterback. Now, there is some fairness and in, in some critique of Jackson and, and just in the sense that, you know, that I, I don't even say critique the right word. I mean, it's true that a lot of high profile receivers maybe don't want to go to Baltimore because Jackson's ability to run means less like, you know, receptions for them. A lot of times he, he doesn't typically stay in the pocket. He likes to escape the pocket, create with his legs and then, you know, have the threat of him being able to run even from behind the line of scrimmage, open up, passing lanes down the field so he doesn't play the traditional like just drop back Patrick Patrick Mahomes Josh Allen um, Aaron Rodgers Brady type of uh, quarterbacking um, now go back to the draft in 2018 NFL scouting combine and he was asked explicitly about you know are you going to be moved to a wide receiver um, you know and that, that really bothered him so the Bernard Pollard comment about you know no receivers want to go play for you uh, you know because once that that's what got Jackson to respond actually on Twitter. Um, let's keep in mind he's also going into his last year of his con- rookie contract, and he does not have an agent. So another line of criticism from the predominantly white sports media has been that he's really uh, hampering himself, like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not able to build his brand the right way uh, and by not hiring an agent. And so the thing with Bernard Pollard is, you know, he 
clap back at him, making fun of like, yo, I don't even know who you are. You know, who knows if that's true or not. But the larger point is that this whole idea of like top 10 quarterback versus a top 10, you know, athlete, top 10 playmaker, um, and how that affects, you know, and granted Bernard Pollard's job now is like, is it, it's to be in media, but how that affects the ability of, of Jackson and, and contract negotiations now. And I think that's what, you know, made him respond the way he did. I mean, there's, uh, for years, you know, there, there's been this stigma, this idea of, of intelligence uh, being not the same amongst black quarterbacks. And if you just look at, like, there's, for instance, this guy Andrew Billings of ResearchGate.net had a statistical analysis of, like, you know, specifically white announcers talking about, um, you know, white quarterbacks versus black quarterbacks. And you look at, like, there were a sample size of, um, 110 white quarterbacks were described as having great, uh, uh, 76% of the time having great concentration. Out of 34 black quarterbacks, only 24% of the time were they described as having great concentration. The same thing when you look at composer. You look at 163 white quarterbacks, uh, you know, 74% of the time described as having great composer. Out of 57 black quarterbacks, only 26% of the time um, where they describe as having great composure. They, the one courage is an interesting one, a very amorphous term here. Uh, out of 50 white quarterbacks, they were described 79% of the time as having great courage. Out of 13 black quarterbacks, only 21% of them were described as having you know great courage. So uh, those are just some of the, way, the, the, the obstacles historically and presently that black quarterbacks have faced in, in, uh, in terms of how they're perceived and if you remember, these announcers are the ones that are mediating reality between, you know, what's happening on the field and, and the public at large. So um, all this stuff is very relevant. And, um, you know, even though Jackson uh, is very different quarterback, he does run a lot. Um, he, he won the MVP in 2019, though, throwing the ball at a very elite level. And uh, there's been other black quarterbacks who don't run as much, but still have faced uh, the same kind of stereotypical criticism. So, there's a lot in play here, and, uh, and uh, it just shows us that despite all the NFL's doing, promoting Condoleezza Rice and, and, and being so proud that she's part of the Broncos ownership group and the Raiders now having a female you know, president of the team, um, a lot of that's being used to, to cover up you know, um, assumptions and prejudices that uh, still very much exist that are widely held in, in sports media. And, and perceptions of the league and what it means to be, you know, a, the signal, the signal caller, the quarterback of a franchise, uh, the most front and center face of the franchise, um, and the fact that there's still these issues persisting, you know, in this, you know, in 2022, shows where we really are in terms of uh, the progress that's uh, been made or lack of. Yeah, Nate, I'm glad you did mention Condoleezza Rice because I was going to say, as, as as good as it is that Lamar Jackson is pushing back on the, this racist narrative coming from NFL uh, sportscasters that, you know, obviously reflects a very long history of racism in the league. I mean, racism in, in the NFL is solved now that Condoleezza Rice is now one of the uh, uh, new owners or, or uh, the newest uh, person to join this group of owners owners of the Denver Broncos, right? That's right. I mean, we can pretty much declare, just like, you know, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, that racism is now over uh, because now we're trying to leave the rights has entered the ranks of, uh, of ownership amongst the NFL. I mean, let's be all honest, the team was sold for $4.65 to uh, the Walton family, people from the Walton family that owns Walmart. 
uh, I mean, $4.65 billion, excuse me. So there's a number of minority owners in which uh, they're bringing into the, the ownership group. Uh, there's, I mean, I know Condoleezza Rice has made a lot of money writing books and, you know, working at the Hoover Institute, but that, that kind of money you got to have. So the you know, Walton family type of money, I'm pretty sure she hasn't quite gotten on that level yet with the book deals. But um, so I'm not sure what the percentage of the ownership is, um, but, you know, she's been floated before as, uh, you know, as candidate for everything from NFL commissioner to NCAA, you know, head of the NCAA to like, you know, let's not forget she was also the first uh, black member and female member of Augusta National Golf Club. So I think she served the ruling class pretty well in terms of giving them a lot of firsts that they can then throw out there as being representative of, uh, you know, racial progress. It doesn't really reflect uh, the racial progress when you look at class um, for the for the overwhelming majority of, of, of black people in this country. Yeah, and I got to say, it actually feels completely appropriate that somebody like Condoleezza Rice um, gets added to the, the ownership group of the Denver Broncos because, I mean, she's someone that is presented as a person that uh, uh, that black people should be proud of and that should be, you know, honored and admired for being a black person in the halls of power. And certainly we live in a time now of, uh, you know, intersectional imperialism where we're supposed to feel good about black people or women or, or Latin folks or uh, uh, Muslims or LGBTQ folks or indigenous folks or, you know, any number of uh, oppressed groups, um, you know, uh, having these uh, uh, high positions in the uh, imperialist government. And then understanding, as we've discussed on, on the show before, about the uh, connections between the NFL and professional sports in the U.S. and imperialism. Well, having an imperialist like Condoleezza Rice then as a part of a, a professional football team ownership group seems to make um, all the sense in the world. World. And I think you're right, Nate, is that this is ultimately uh, a, a boon, a benefit for uh, the ruling class because it puts a nice face, literally, on uh, sort of the deeply exploitative nature of the league and of the sports in general. But I mean, like we've been discussing, I feel like the proof is in the pudding. And the fact that someone from an oppressed group uh, is now a part of the exploitation or a part of the benefit from the exploitation doesn't make it somehow less exploitive. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it, it's uh, it's all about just getting to a position where you can do the exploiting, right? And not not, not be another way around. Uh, that, that, that marks progress for a lot of these a lot of these people at the, at the top. So, um, you know, we have we should all we all get together and they organize a big big party this weekend, right? Uh, the Condoleezza Condoleezza made it, you know, uh, you know, parade or something. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 uh yeah, that yeah that's just that's just how how they roll with this stuff and it's not just you know sports is just one part of it we see this in politics and business all the time you know media you know you flip around watch reality TV so much of it is like these shows about uh you know how to like make it to the top and you're an inspiration because you became some real estate mogul who grew up in the hood or something I mean this it's it, 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 you would say, you would think at this point it'd be a cliche and people would just see through it, but it uh, clearly, I guess, still has resonance with uh, you know quite a quite a number of folks that you know probably want to get out of bad situations and see don't really see don't have the political education, weren't given to it by this this system, and see kind of trying to climb your way to the top of an existing exploitative system is uh, the, the next best option. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, as always, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, July 15th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now. On Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're... Very happy to be joined for the hour today by the good doctor, Sharice Burden-Stelly, an associate professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University and co-editor of the upcoming book, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing. Dr. Burden-Stelly, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, both. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. And Dr. Burton-Stelly, we are uh, a couple of weeks away from Black August uh, here in the United States. A time to study, a time to fast, a time to train, and a time to fight. And although it's a little ways off, I always find it helpful, for me at least, to begin to try to get in uh, uh, the spirit of Black August mentally, physically, and otherwise, because it is a sort of very challenging thing, or it can be because of what we demand of ourselves during that time. And it's because of that that my mind has sort of uh, wandered, if you will, to the subject of Asada Shakur. And I feel like Asada is really always relevant in in a number of ways, I think particularly in our uh, current political moment. Uh, As someone who uh, I maintain is functionally the sort of matron saint of the movement for black lives, 
I mean, we uh, we quote her at the end of demonstrations. People uh, uh, are, are, you know, have been fond of saying things like Asada taught me, although depending on who's saying it, sometimes I question that. But when we take a look at the politics of an Asada Shakur, which uh, which is what I always think about when I see this phrase Asada taught me, I'm always wondering, well, are we just sort of focusing on an idea or an image of Asada Shakur, or are we really sort of grappling with the substance of her politics and the character of her organizing? Because Asada was someone, is someone, who is clear about the contradictions of this capitalist system and the intertwining nature of that with white supremacy. This is why she was involved with organizations like the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army and, and things like this. And of course, this is also what made her a target of this government and why she remains a target of this government, right? And also someone who uh, talked about, you know, the importance of uh, youth organizing and things like this. And, you know, as we continue to see young people going into the movement, that continues to be very relevant. And I feel like this uh, centering, in a sense, or this emphasis, if you will, on Asada that we've seen in the time since uh, the explosion of uh, the movement for black lives. I mean, we've kind of seen a real, uh, a deeper appreciation for the role of black women leadership and thought in movements. And so I'm thinking of the works of people like, you know, Carol Boyce Davies and her works on uh, Claudia Jones, Barbara Ransby and her works on Ella Baker, uh, Keisha Blaine, not that long ago, put out a piece on Fannie Lou Hamer. She's also done some great work on uh, uh, black internationalist women and black nationalist women. You see what I mean? And so to begin, I really w- I want to ask a kind of broad question is when we take a look at the pressing concerns and contradictions of this moment as we see capitalism and imperialism in decline, but not yet on the verge of defeat, how do you situate an Asada Shakur within that? And what do you think she still has to tell us and teach us about what we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Asada Shakur is important for a number of reasons in studying her um, life and work, I think reveals a lot of the contradictions in our society. So, you know, first and foremost, so she describes herself as a formal political, a former political prisoner, but I would argue that she still is, that the condition of exile is a form of um, political imprisonment, as there are things like, you know, deportation. So, for example, you know, Claudia Jones, who you mentioned, was deported in 1955. Um, so that sort of casting out. So, so you know, um, political imprisonment is not just about being behind par, uh, behind bars per se. Like it, it's manifested in, in a number of ways, and I think that. Um, part of what she conveys is the importance of looking at the realities of political prisoners or of um, incarcerated persons in general, because so many of the sort of forms of domination um, in our society uh, accrue around those people. So, for example, I was just looking through her book and there's a a part when she's um, pregnant and the um, doctors try to force her to have an abortion. And of course, abortion is this hot topic right now. 
but it's often being misconstrued as like a, a question of personal choice as opposed to, uh, you know, the overturning of Roe being a form of class war, um, that the right to access or that reproductive justice and the right to all manner of forms of health care are structural issues. And I think that, you know, Asada's analysis, her experience with being um with being um, pregnant behind bars and the different ways that her reproductive rights and bodily autonomy were undermined, um, I think that it allows us to have a, a better understanding of some of these issues that often can be become abstracted or be um, um, liberalized in particular ways, right? Or um, um, co-opted uh, by by the petty bourgeoisie or or elites to to undermine the sort the, the radical potential of of organizing around particular issues. Um, I think Asada Shakur is also important because <laughs> she belonged to an organization, multiple organizations, and there's a weird ethos right now that really condemns or is um, pushing back against the idea of joining an organization. And you know, folks point out many of the contradictions that are embedded in in, in organizations or, or left-wing organizations in particular. But of course, we're still in a capitalist, a racial capitalist society. So why wouldn't those contradictions be uh, present? And the point of joining an organization after all is to struggle, right? Is to raise political consciousness and to engage collectively um, in political education, in struggle and in, in movement building. And so um, I think so there are I mean, there are hundreds <laughs> of lessons that we can learn from um, studying Asada Shakur. But I think that the other important one is to move away from this celebrity logic because some of the ways that the Asada Shakur taught me slogan or the the engagement with um, Asada Shakur can manifest is as a sort of singular heroic figure, which, you know, dovetails with the the celeb our our very sort of endemic celebrity culture in this society. And I think it's much, much more important to understand her as part of a collective, um, as somebody who was challenging um, you know, structures of domination alongside comrades, um, as somebody who saw the value in, you know, sacrificing oneself for for and in an organization. And so I hope that those are the lessons that folks take. And as they're celebrating her birthday tomorrow. So, you know, happy revolutionary birthday, um, Asada Shakur. Like, I hope that those are the lessons that people take away um, more so than just having her name or, or likeness um, sprawled across a T-shirt. Yeah, you know, a couple of quick things, because, uh, you know, I agree that I think the way that a lot of folks think and engage with the SADA, it, it reminds me of how a different generation of people sort of engaged with Angela Davis, right? And so there's this image of yep. Angela Davis with her Afro, and that image sort of, uh, it, it implies something, right? And and it's kind of uh, a representation of uh, this uh, radical black womanhood, if we want to frame it in that way. And maybe it doesn't go beyond that for some people, but it, it kind of had that same residence. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, look, for the record, I'm not, you know, <laughs> knocking anybody's radical T-shirt. I got a, a goodly number of them myself. Matter of fact, I literally have an Asada Shakur T-shirt that's on the way to me in the mail. But but I'm just saying that there's obviously so much more there. And, you know, it's funny that you raised this issue of her becoming pregnant because it's when she talks about this in her book, in her autobiography, 
it's so clear that, you know, the the authorities that she was engaging with was very upset that they kind of got one over on them in this way and was able to literally create life while they were trying to stomp out hers. And I feel like I should also note that uh, uh, Asada's comrade, Sundiata Akoli, is now free after decades being locked up. But um, Kamal Siddiqui, with whom Asada shares a daughter, is still a political prisoner. And reportedly that has a lot to do with his refusal to inform on her. But uh, Jackie Lukma, I want to bring you in here. Yeah, I mean, just the whole point uh, uh, that that you brought up, uh, Dr. Sharice Burton-Stelly, about the whole Asada Shakur uh, uh, aesthetic. That's that's what I call it. In uh, too many public movement spaces, I think, also kind of bleeds over into the way organizing isn't being done, because I I, I see people uh, using the hands up, don't shoot, you know, phrase and not realizing that in, in regard to Asada Shakur, she literally was shot with her hands up and they're thinking that they're saying something revolutionary, but and and at the same time saying, you know, Asada taught me, but but this is not the kind of thing that Asada would have taught us to do uh, when she was organizing. She was involved in, you know, political education as well as uh, providing clinics and, and that type of thing that I don't see happening among some of the folks who are publicly out protesting, which is a good thing. We need that. But I don't see the kind of background on-the-ground organizing from folks saying that Asada taught me, they're not doing what Asada actually taught folks to do. So, I mean, how do you frame uh, the the current, or at least uh, hopefully what will continue, the, the energy in the streets to mobilize against, you know, a rising coalescing of very organized right-wing forces in this country um, without the solid benefits, uh, not benefits, well, without the solid uh, 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 basics that Asada actually did teach us to do. Well, I mean, I think that as a society, we're very good at mobilizing um, but we are those of, you know, as Gerald Horn says, our friends on the left um, are not very good at um, organizing or at, you know, um, sustaining or maintaining um, broad based organizations. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about um, mutual aid um, as in, in the way that it's put forth by particular political what we say, uh, <laughs> particular political orientations is like as a replacement for joining an organization. And I, I think that mutual aid is important, but oftentimes too, like this idea of mutual aid is the mutual aspect of mutual aid is not present. And it's really sort of, um, random, um, it's really charity, right? And again, like anything that sort of helps to allay the material suffering of, of our people, I think is objectively a good thing. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very sort of skeptical of, of how to actually achieve any sort of, of mass movement and sustain any sort of, of mass movement 
um, even across ideological lines without some basis in um, in organizing. And obviously somebody like Asada Shakur seemed to understand that quite clearly. And she was in organizations like, you know, the Black Panther Party that had a lot of contradictions, right? People have written extensively about some of um, some of the gender dynamics, for example. And yet this does not did not deter her. So this idea that there are, you know, perfect organizations that we can join or that we can build is you know, as goofy as this idea that there are perfect revolutionaries, there are not. And so I think people, we have to build up our capacity to not center ourselves and our capacity to be uncomfortable and to really struggle in an ethical and a principled way um, as the basis for, you know, being able to to challenge the, the very organized, um, very powerful well-financed um, right wing. And, and to be sure, I'm sure that all of the right wingers, there might there's probably some ideological differences as well as some sort of difference in material interest between, for example, white supremacists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis. But we're not going to see that on Twitter. Hmm. <laughs> right. We're not mm-hmm. right. We're not going to see that on other other sort of social media. They they can close ranks in a fundamental way in ways that the left seems to not be able to um, to do. So I think that we have to sort of be sober in our understanding that you know, as George Jackson said, you know, fascism is here. Um, what are we going to do about it? And and what are the what are the sort of what are the ways that we can sort of coalesce around? the many, many things we have in common as opposed to tearing down organizations or avoiding organizations altogether because of trivial, you know, trivial um, differences. And I'm not I'm not talking about like the big things that happen, like the forms of, you know, abuse or whatever that can happen. But a lot of times it's, it's tri- trivial, like differences that people use to rationalize not joining an organization or from turning away from organizing. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned uh, that George Jackson quote, and that's exactly what I thought of when when you mentioned how the right operates in that way, which they absolutely do. You know what I mean? When he talked about settle your quarrels and see the right in this country <laughs> understands unity in a real way. And, and I talk about this all the time about how, you know, some of us have this conception of unity uh, uh, to mean that we agree on every single solitary thing. And, and no, it's a matter of building on that which you uh, uh, agree and struggling with each other over these other issues internally, but not letting that uh, have a negative impact on the work itself. And I mean, when you look at how this manifests, just saying the dynamic between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, and you see that the Republicans are very clear and explicit about what they believe and they fight for it. It just so happens that the things they believe and fight for are completely reactionary and run counter to the interests of the masses of poor working and oppressed people, while the Democrats, on the other hand, proclaim to stand for this, that, and the third, but don't fight for any of it and basically help to facilitate this uh, uh, push of the right. And I should mention that they've done a good bit of moving to the right themselves. You know what I mean? And so there's no uh, real fight back in that sense. And we're, I, I would actually say that we're in a moment where the Republicans have been positioned as the party of opposition in the United States. You know what I mean? Their position as this uh, this uh, a, a subversive force that is supposedly uh, uh, really 
addressing this or, or that uh, uh, issue. And whether or not that's true, um, I think is uh, maybe less relevant considering the fact that it works. And so if what we want is, you know, a real alternative and a real sort of uh, insurgent sort of movement, then it has to be an effort, an element that comes from outside of these ruling class uh, political institutions. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lubman continue to be joined by Dr. Sharice Burden Stelly. And Doctor, I got a lot of thoughts following from our uh, discussion of Asada Shakur and the importance of joining uh, organizations and why the organizational form itself is so crucial. And I actually thought of, because, you know, I mentioned Angela Davis earlier, and I was thinking about her own words about why she uh, ultimately became a member of the Communist Party at that time. And she said, quote, I wanted an anchor, a base, a mooring. I needed comrades, not allies. I needed comrades with whom I could share a common ideology. I was tired of ephemeral ad hoc groups that fell apart when faced with the slightest difficulty. Tired of men who measured their sexual height by women's intellectual genuflection. It wasn't that I was fearless, but I knew that to win, we had to fight. And the fight that would win was the one collectively waged by the masses of our people and working people in general. And I feel like that 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 says a lot, and especially this ephemeral ad hoc groups, because, yeah, I tell you, I mean, even if we just look at the the period since 2020, right, since the George Floyd protests and all over the country, D.C. and New York, all over the country, we saw, you know, the popping up of uh, spontaneous uh, sort of groups, typically of, you know, young people, perhaps they're newly radicalized and they're excited and all these sorts of things. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, what I see a lot is that there's a lack of structure and a real lack of internal democracy that is directly related to that structure which, as Davis lays out, ultimately leads to a lot of these groups just imploding because they have no means to reconcile these contradictions. And so a group that very well could have made uh, an impact is now just one of many that are lost to history. You know what I mean? And I want to connect that to the class character of how we think about certain things. And people on the show have heard me rant uh, a number of times before about uh, popular ideas around uh, self-care, this concept of self-care, right? Well, a friend of the show, Erica Keynes, actually recently published an article about this at hoodcommunist.org, which, you know, I recommend everyone read. It's entitled, 
austerity and the apolitical act of self-care. And in this, Keynes really crystallizes and, and articulates and elucidates so many of the issues that I have with uh, the concept of self-care as it's popularly understood. But she locates this with none other than Audre Lorde and in her piece, The Cancer Journals, in which Lorde writes, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And she said that Lord also understood this to be, quote, an act of political warfare. And I just want to read a quick uh, uh, sentence that she, she wrote here that I think says a lot. Uh, Keynes writes, self-care as a result of this consumerist society under this current economic crisis has become synonymous with treat yourself. There is seemingly no understanding of Lord's critiques of the colonial healthcare system or the white supremacist state at large. There's little to no interrogation of the material results of a misdirected politics centered in individualism. Now, I, I just tossed a lot at you there, uh, Dr. Burton-Stelly, but within this context or this concept of uh, uh, a real sort of a, a working class struggle, and understanding the kinds of organizations that we need to have and how we need to show up in those spaces. Uh, I just think it's important to hone in on that, especially in a moment like this, where we see conditions for the masses of folks only getting worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I so first of all, shout out to Erica, bat, bat, bat. Um, but anyway, um, I think um, in terms of, so you mentioned like, these organizations don't have enough democracy. I think that's maybe correct. But I also think that there's this understanding that a democratic organization or an egalitarian organization means everybody gets to say things all the time. And I don't think that that's necessarily how a democratic organization ought to or or needs to um, function first and foremost. And secondly, I think that there's a broader problem of discipline mm. uh, more so than or, or maybe alongside um, democracy. And, you know, there can be, you know, this. Uh, so I, I, I think that discipline is really, really important. Doing things you don't necessarily want to do. Um, engaging in, again, in principle struggle, um, you know, showing up when it's not necessarily convenient, um, you know, being comrades with people that are not necessarily friends. Like, I think all of those things are extremely important to belonging to an organization. Um, and I think the lack of discipline is actually somewhat related to this individualized notion of self-care um, because, you know, both are rooted in this idea of, you know, a particular notions of like deservedness or of um, um, entitlement, I guess. Right. And, you know, this whole, um, like self self centering thing, which I again I think that self care or I think that it is important to sustain and nourish ourselves to be sure because if you are unwell right 
then it's very, very hard to be in the service of others. But I think the conflation of um, self-care with, as you know, Erica was saying, like, treat yourself, number one, in this economy, like, who can actually afford to do that in a sort of, as, as a practice, right? People might be able to afford, like, rewards or treats here and there. And this, the other thing about that, too, is that we we shame poor people for mm. um, mm-hmm. for doing for self, right? We assume that poor people, people who, um, you know, working in poor people should, if they do any number of things, right? Engage in any number of activities or, or, or engage in consumerism. We shame them and we, um, you know, we make that the reason why they're poor or why they're oppressed, right? And so it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, I think, it's a, it's a politic, if you want to even call it that, but it's, it's a sort of assertion that I think is very amenable to reproducing um, hierarchies and to, again, evading a, a more like collective consciousness, um, evading a, a community um, ethic or a community orientation. Um, and I do think that it can be rooted in a particular selfishness that, again, can be foundational to people's aversion to or or denigration of organizations, right? That it's all about me and my comfort um, and having my ideas and my voice lifted up irrespective of, of other people, you know? And so, yeah, <laughs> that's what I think about that. Yeah, I mean, I do like the fact that, you know, the article that Ricky wrote uh, it connects the capitalist nature of this whole what's become, you know, a, a self, <laughs> the self-care industrial complex now where, you know, self-care is capitalized and it's a whole industry now that's, that's you know, tied to th- this whole quote-unquote uh, wokeness. But Audrey Lord was writing about caring for herself, not in the context of self-indulgence. She wrote it as as she was struggling with cancer uh, in in her literally the works are called the cancer journals. And she said it's it is self-preservation, but she also understood it to be an act of political warfare because and I think that's really important when we look at the need for us, particularly in these movement spaces to take care of ourselves, because this entire system Dr. Burton Stelly is designed to work us to death, right? It is designed to extract every single thing out of us that it can get. And when we are driven to an early grave, then it will use our children and the rest of our family. So, I mean, I think you connecting the idea of self-care to individualism also exposes how we have not well connected the idea and the need for self-care, particularly for us in these movement spaces, to be serious about self-care because we have to continue to fight this system. Because, again, when we look at political prisoners, when we look at what was done to and is still being done to Asada Shakur, when we look at uh, the continued police repression, when we look at inflation and how it is <laughs> starving and, you know, creating even more homelessness among black and brown populations. I mean, they're really trying to kill us off so that we don't fight. So it is a political act of resistance to make sure that we stick around long enough to continue to fight. 
I mean, I guess, and I, I, I agree, right? I, part of me, though, there's just such a slippery slope between, you know, you know, the whole idea that like my survival is resistance, or you know, the way that sometimes, you know, it's assumed that because you're in a particular body, yeah. right? You're in a particular sort of oppressed, multiply oppressed body that you're objectively revolutionary. I don't think that's what you're suggesting. And I don't think that that's what Audre Lorde is suggesting. But I think that, you know, if self-care is an act of political warfare, that to me means you have to be engaged in political struggle. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't like the sort of, um, you know, the idea that it's it's kind of like you know I'm I'm an academic so it's it's when sort of academics think that writing books about radicalism is radicalism itself you know mm-hmm. and it's not and so I think that there had like part of what makes self care an act of political warfare is survival in the service of others right survival or even you know and to the beyond just bare life or bare subsistence but like survival in the service of like the broader um, struggle. And this is not to say that folks should be like all self-sacrificing. Cause I think that that's another problem that can be, that can, um, happen in, in movement spaces where we don't take care of ourselves and we don't, um, we just over, we reproduce those capitalist, capitalist logics by overworking ourselves and not getting rest and not having boundaries and those sorts of things. So, but I do think, I, I just, I hesitate a little bit with the idea that the very act of, um, you know, doing something for yourself is the politic. Like, I think that that can be a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. And because, uh, you know, I feel like if, if if I walk around the corner from the uh, from the Sputnik office to, to one of these uh, fancy steakhouses and get myself a hundred dollar steak, I might be treating myself. But I don't know if I, I wouldn't count that as self-care and I certainly wouldn't consider it political warfare. You know what I mean? And, you know, th- this conversation, it makes me think of uh, a chat I was having with a comrade recently. And she was telling me about a conversation that she was having with another comrade who's, you know, been in the movement several decades. No one could rightly question their, uh, uh, you know, allegiance to the struggle. And she, who's my age, asked this older comrade, you know, something to the effect of, well, I mean, should I take vacation? Should I do? I don't know. And this this older comrade was like, well, yes, of course. You know, you, you have to. You know what I mean? And so, yes, it, it is important that we um, not only understand and acknowledge, but but actually address these basic needs. Because, see, the thing about, uh, uh, you know, movement people or revolutionaries, we're not from Krypton. You feel me? We're, we're human beings. With all the same needs that that human beings have. And so this political work that we love and we're dedicated to fits in or it has to fit in with all the other stresses of life, because, you know, if you're a functional adult, right, then you've got some stressors. You've got work. You've got your personal life. You've got your political work. You've got all these things that are demanding of your capacity, of your time, of your resources, all these sorts of things. And if you don't sort of uh, uh, address these needs that we all have, well, that puts you in a position where you can't show up 
for the movement as your best self in the way that we all need. Right. And I was having another conversation with really about this same thing with uh, 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 some comrades the other day. And they were talking about how we kind of have to rethink. We have to rethink self-care in a number of ways. But one of them is we have to start thinking about, well, what does collective care look like? Right. So when we're in movement and in organizations and we're in community with people, are we simply being transactional with each other? Are we just showing up for the meeting or the event and then going home and being disconnected afterward? Or are we interested in the humanity of each other and uplifting that and seeing to it that people are taken care of? in the way that they need to be. But see, I think this is also when we talk about how we conceive of ourselves and each other in this context, I think this is why the concept of comradeship is so important as opposed to the popular concept of being an ally. You know what I mean? And I've been reading uh, Dr. Jody Dean's book, uh, a Comrade, and you mentioned um, discipline a moment ago, Sharice, which I think is very on point. I feel like we could do a whole two hour show on just that. But she talks about how discipline and joy are kind of a part of the twin halves of what that means and about and how the word comrade as a form of address. It is a carrier of expectation. If I call you comrade, that means I expect something of you. If you say, Sean, you're my comrade, that means you expect something from me. Not to us as individuals per se, but our sort of joint commitment to this political cause. You know what I mean? And so in 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 considering this, I feel like it brings us back to sort of the 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 class character of the struggle itself, you know? And we have a real issue, I think, in our current movement moment of, you know, what's termed radical liberalism, to where a lot of folks are functioning on this liberal individualistic track, but wrapping it in radical or revolutionary sounding jargon. You know, you could even uh, uh, talk about anti-capitalism or socialism in these terms, if you like, because you're just saying words. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I think it can be very tempting and really quite easy to fall into that. But here again, with the proper organization, political education and understanding of the bonds that actually tie us together within struggle beyond superficialities and beyond the hierarchies imposed on us by the system, I think is when we really begin to correct that. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. 
Dr. Cherise Burdenstelli is here. And doctor, I wanted to uh, ground our uh, uh, conversation here a little more concretely in our current moment, right? Because we've been talking about movement at all kinds of different levels, ideologically, what it means, right? And uh, I, I came across this uh, uh, piece, and I'm definitely curious your, your thoughts on this as an academic, because within this issue of the attack on abortion rights, the attack on reproductive rights, right? We're seeing academic conferences facing pressure to avoid holding these conferences in states that are hostile to abortion rights. You know what I mean? I know the the AEA is at least one of them. And, you know, there's a whole conversation about uh, uh, sort of the, the role in academics and politics, I think, in a number of ways. And I forgot who it was that said this or wrote this, but, you know, they talk about how the academy is an institution through which the bourgeoisie uh, reproduces itself, reproduces itself. But even within that, you know, there are uh, uh, revolutionary entities, socialist, communist entities. Now, not all of them are activists. There's like a difference there. Not all of them are activists and organizers, but, uh, but even still. But I want to ask you this within the frame of the concept of the guerrilla intellectual, right? As espoused by Walter Rodney. And uh, uh, doctor, I know that you're someone who is... Uh, I don't even think it's right to call you a student. I'd say a disciple of Walter Rodney. Uh, uh, I'm definitely wondering how you're sort of seeing it. And I was looking at a piece on your website, ShariseBurdenStelly.com, and you talk about, you know, uh, a Walter Rodney quotes that you love where he gets into that sort of thing. And you quote uh, 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 Patricia Rodney when she says that Walter was, quote, torn by the lack of connection between academia and the working class. And he had a strong desire to bridge these two worlds in order to, quote, foster a culture of grassroots change and empower people with tools to implement such change. That's the groundings Rodney talked about, right? And so from that frame, uh, uh, Dr. Burton-Stilley, what do you see as the role of the academic in a moment like this? Hmm. Uh, well, uh -oh. um, <laughs> often I wish academics would um, say nothing as praxis. Um, <laughs> that's what I want most often from many of my colleagues, to be completely honest, because because, as you were saying, number one, academia does reproduce the, you know, the petty bourgeoisie. The and and the bourgeoisie, right? And and academia can is also the intellectual arm of the state, and so often academics can have a very sort of colonial logic to the way that they engage, or a very elitist logic um, to the way that they engage in academia, but also outside of it. And so, um, you know. And and a lot of academics have very esoteric knowledge bases. They study their one thing, and you know. That is what they know very well, but often because they have degrees, they feel that they entitled to speak about any number of things that they really should not be speaking about because oftentimes they're just parroting the State Department line. This is particularly the fact with when it comes to internationalism. But anyway, to the to the extent or, or you know, the international situation, um, but to the extent that the whole like boycott situation 
I think that what we have to understand is that, you know, these states, many of these states where abortion, um, like abortion bans have, um, have been implemented, these are some of the places where the most black people are, <laughs> where the most oppressed people are, right? And so there can be a way, there it can be a sort of form of abandonment if we don't, if we simply leave, you know, we we render those places just sort of dead zones or toxic zones, like a lot, there's a lot of, you know, working class, poor and racialized people in those states and in those cities. So what are we to do? We just simply abandon those people. Um, so I, I, you know, so that is one aspect of it. The other thing too, is like, I just find it quite um, interesting what triggers this call for boycott, right? So right now it's the abortion ban, but, you know, I don't see calls to boycott D.C. All of these political decisions are, right, that is the sort of locus of <laughs> of U.S. politics, so to speak, right? Like, if we're, if we're boycotting the sort of, the things that really make our lives, that really are an abrogation, right, of, of our freedom, then we have to boycott the U.S., like, because this is a settler colonial society after all. So it's just, and, and you know, Another Supreme Court decision that was handed down was the, you know, upheld gerrymandering, for example, in Louisiana. So why is not why is that not the basis of a call for a boycott? Is it because it only if it particularly affects black people? So I don't, so some of these calls for boycotts, I feel like are self-interested. They're they're fickle. They're not part of any broader struggle. Um, and so and, and they're so they're piecemeal. So I don't know. So I think. Um, but that's, you know, but that's kind of the, the way that many academics, um, their politics work. (laughs) So it makes sense that that would seem like a very sort of radical move without sort of thinking through these sort of broader dynamics. Yeah. And, you know, another one of the quotes, uh, that you note, uh, that you love about Rodney, uh, Walter Rodney, uh, from him was, uh, what he said about the guerrilla intellectual also, you know, in this political moment, which, you know, he was saying that it's, it's how, uh, intellectuals who are not as well represented in academia, uh, use their uh, strength to transform uh, the logical position over a period of time into one where they can call the tune and ultimately carry the battle to the enemy. Now, you, I consider, a guerrilla intellectual of the highest order, of the best kind, and all of those good things. But I do see in this political moment so many people who, especially online and and, and not even folks who necessarily have the academic bona fides to, you know, call themselves an intellectual at all, (laughs) but but they do. they they don't do ex- you know any of the intellectual changing of the narrative shifting the argument about abortion rights you know really the broader issue of reproductive freedom i mean and this is from the left i mean so how do you see the like like the academic uh, intellectual uh, discourse around these issues from people who who claim to be left and and have you know some type of of public platform, but really are just carrying the same you know uh, establishment line. What what do we do with them? You know, <laughs> oh, academia. So I mean, I think you know, 
I do. I don't think that we can necessarily, I don't think that we can see the academy as a terrain of struggle. And that's, I think, precisely what Walter Rodney is talking about when he's talking about the guerrilla intellectual, that, you know, you have to wage struggle where you, where you are and that we can't seed, um, we can't seed academia to the reactionary forces, or we have to push, we have to carve out space to the best of our ability in something that's in a sort of inherently imperialist structure, right? Um, and I think, you know, there there's an anti-intellectualism that I think is really disingenuous, because on the one hand, you know, folks talk about the problems with academics or with intellectuals or whatever, however they conceive that, but so many of our heroes have PhDs or were of the petty bourgeoisie, but committed class suicide. So I do believe that it's possible. And I do believe that, um, you know, it is worthwhile to struggle with. So for me, right, it would be worthwhile for me to struggle with my colleagues. At the same time, you know, Walter Rodney says that, you know, intellectuals, Black intellectuals are enemies of the people until proven otherwise. And so I think that that proving otherwise is really, really important. Um, But I think that people need to, we can't just write them off wholesale. They have to have the opportunity to prove otherwise. But then when they indeed confirm that they are enemies, that is when we, you know, we do what we can to to decenter or to even sort of marginalize, right, those voices um, and to lift up people who are, um, actually committed to like, you know, to, to people's, um, liberation. So, you know, but I think that on the other hand, so a critique that really annoys me is that there's so much stuff that is criticized as academic, but it's not academic. It has nothing to do with academics per se. So like, you know, the abstraction of language or the taking up of radical terms, there are very many influencers, journalists, so-called, you know, writers who are not affiliated with academia who do those sorts of things, but all those people get conflated as academics if they use a particular language or if they um, have, you know, I don't know. And so I think that sometimes the critique of this this sort of broad, abstract critique of quote-unquote academics or academia is, um, it's lazy and it's not precise and it allows for other actors or other groups who do the same types of things with much larger followings to evade critique and criticism. Um, So I think that keeping the class character central, um, keeping the sort of the ways that celebrity operates in our society central to our critique is really, really important when we're, when we're, um, you know, when we're calling out what the sort of the antagonisms or the contradictions are. Yeah, definitely. And I was hoping you could say more about this um, anti-intellectualism that you're describing here, doctor, because, you know, when I think about anti-intellectualism, I think about this <laughs> avoiding of reading that some people have. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. How, I don't know what else to call it. I don't know what else to call it. But and that's an aspect of it. But you're describing sort of a, another aspect. And it's also something that 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 I see in the sense that, you know, this, this brushing off of academics as just, you know, ivory tower, uh, uh, you know, intellectuals and things like that that have no connection to uh, real struggles, which certainly is true for for a lot of people. But I just think that's like you're saying, a kind of superficial and very sort of uh uh, face value type of of analysis. And really, I want to dig into this, uh, what you mentioned about, you know, the, the celebrity aspect, this culture of celebrity worship that uh, we have in the United States, which I think definitely manifest in influencer culture. And there is such a thing as the celebrity academic, the celebrity public intellectual, the celebrity activist. And on that note, I think it shows 
<laughs> how hollow that whole thing is. Because again, if we go back to uh, 2020, you know, uh, it, we're talking about millions of people that were in the streets and some of the most prominent celebrity organizers wasn't outside. Right. So and they saw their stock kind of drop around that time as well. And so how do you see this 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 culture of celebrity worship that really, you know, just uh, uh, is infused all throughout society? How do you see that as impacting all of this? Well, I think that what happens is, I mean, people don't care about a thing until it happens to somebody famous or happens to somebody prominent. And the reason why and then they go overboard (laughs) with caring about that issue, because, number one, then it sort of, you know, your outrage is noticed. Right. If you are if you're, you know, tweeting or or whatever, you know, complaining about a form of injustice that happens to your neighbor that nobody knows and nobody cares about, then you don't get the same type of it doesn't it doesn't have the same payoff. Right. And. The thing with celeb, the problem with celebrity worship or celebrity culture is that it presents all of these structural issues as a one-off, and it presents, it reproduces the idea that they'll like that forms of of violence or marginalization or whatever only matter when they happen to people with money or people who are famous, right? Or that if those people get justice, however that's conceived, then the rest of us will get justice too. Or conversely, like oh, if it can happen to that rich person, it can happen to me. Even if it didn't happen to that rich person, it will likely happen to you if you're working class or poor, whatever it is, whatever the forms of, of domination are, because that is <laughs> that is the nature of our society. So this, this weird identification with celebrity as if what happens in their lives has some bearing on us is absurd, right? It's, it, and, it's a, and again, it's a way to evade, it, it's actually an evasion of responsibility, right? It's a way to sort of, to perform a politics without actually engaging in those politics in a material way, right? So if you're arguing for the freedom of, of some celebrity who's incarcerated, but you don't, you have never said a word about political prisoners, you have never said a word about ordinary people who are subjected to, you know, the types of laws that the celebrity is subjected to and they don't get to write the president, then I think it's, there's a sort of a, 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 a superficiality, Right. There's a there's a sort of clout chasing aspect to it that, again, allows for people to assert that they're political or or assert a particular radicalism, but not actually have to do anything material. Right. To not have to commit oneself to others um, um, in a in a real way, in a way that is actually going to that is actually the basis for like movement building. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, uh, uh, with within that, it, it just uh, makes it clear about how important it is to sort of have, you know, the right kind of analysis and way that that we view these things. And you're so right, uh, uh, Dr. Burden Stelly. And that's why I continue to be amazed by, you know, the phenomenon of, of, of hives. You know what I mean? Just and I'm not even just talking about like the fans of a person, but just this. I mean, people who really are, they're not just fans, they really are fanatical in the way that they view some of these people to the point where this person and what they do, whether that's movies, music, politics or whatever, it becomes fused with their identity. Right. And that's why I think we see such a passionate defense of these people and why there's so much concern with so many people, because deep down we feel like they are a part of us. But they don't know you from Adam. Beyonce don't know you from a can of paint. 
she's more than happy for you to enjoy your music and buy it and things like that. And, you know, build this, uh, you know, massive uh, corporate entity around her. But she ain't a part of you. It's cool to like what she do. It's cool to like what anybody does. And look, I'm not going to knock you. I talked about Jackie with this offline. Critique me, if you will. I like that that new Beyonce song. You can't break my soul. Fire. And then, and they sprinkled young Frida in there like 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 parsley just on top. And that touched me right in my little Gulf Coast heart. But be that as it may, we can't make the mistake of thinking that we are somehow one with this other class of people. And a part of me wonders if a part of that isn't its own kind of form of escapism, you know, from the pressures and anxieties of being a poor working class person under a capitalist system that is is in decline. But here again, I would argue that, you know, real movement, real organization and a real critical kind of analysis and politic can be a, a corrective to that. And there's no substitute for that, I don't think. And to be clear, when you come into movement, you don't have to give up, you know, these uh, uh, musicians, these artists, or these actors, or these other people who, who you like so much. But our whole frame of thinking has to change if we're literally talking about changing the world. And make no mistake, my friends, that is what we're trying to do and what we need to do. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week. Can run by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Sharice Bergenstelli, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.